My guest, Professor Christopher Beachy, er, er, Beachy is, uh, is a professor of religious studies and transpersonal psychology at Youngstown State University in Ohio for 30 years. He's also been a professor at California Institute of Integral Studies, former director of uh, Transformative Learning at the Institute of Noetic Sciences near San Francisco, and the author of The Living Classroom, Teaching and the Collective Consciousness. He was a guest recently, and I said, would you come back so we can continue our discussion on what value do the world religions hold in the world today? Nice to have you back with us today. Hi, Gary. Thanks for inviting me back. It's nice to be here. When we look at the crisis around the world today, it is my contention that if the leaders of the religions join forces in a constructive, positive way, from food shortages and food hoarding to redistribution of our resources to protecting the natural resources, especially in many of the countries where those resources have been appropriated uh, and privatized by multinational groups, we would have something similar to what the Berrigan brothers, who I knew, in fact, um, mm-hmm. they did a tremendous amount in the 1960s and early 70s to get us out of the war in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. They got a lot of the clergy, especially the Catholics and the Episcopals around New York City, to lead a lot of these demonstrations. If we engage the world's religion in fighting the wars on poverty, on crime, on greed, on redistribution of wealth, I believe that we could do a lot. Those are my thoughts. The forum is yours. Please take your time and address this. Well, I think you're right. I mean, there's so much talent and, and so many resources that uh, that are housed within those traditions that if we can tap those resources and mobilize uh, some of the people there, uh, we can certainly uh, augment uh, kind of the global recovery process, both the social global recovery process and the ecological global recovery process. The challenge, I think, as we stretch into these global problems with and global times, the challenge for these religions is that they have to grow into their higher version of themselves in order to collaborate with the other institutions. They have to get past some of the uh, assumptions of their youth and adolescence and, and, and kind of mature years and the cultural chauvinism that's marked their past. And they have to open into a, a true, not a, a an artificial, but a true uh, ecumenical uh, openness, a true kind of plurality and grow beyond the cultural place. And I th- and that's a struggle. That's a huge uh, cultural and intellectual struggle. Uh, and I'm not sure personally uh, whether in this particular century, given the forces that are challenging us and taking us in new force, new places, new directions, I'm not I really looking at the end of this century or the end of coming out of this transformative valley, uh, I'm not really sure whether these religions will survive intact in their current form. Part of the problem many of us have is that when we look at many of the orthodox older religions, Islam, Catholicism, Judaism, Christianity, we are perplexed because of how they have been presented and who controls them at any given time. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. The religious right in the United States has tried to usurp true liberalism in our foreign policy, the Woodrow Wilson or Wilsonian economics and captured that 
as a principle in religion, but with a very right-wing and ultra-conservative bent on it. Let me explain it so it's not an esoteric principle. Woodrow Wilson was not the uh, imperialist that Teddy Roosevelt was. Uh, he believed more, as Jefferson did, that, that liberalism in its purest form means uh, giving. It means sharing. It means empowering the individual and doing so through the tools of the state so that the individual actually can have a quality of life, pursuit of happiness, and know that their, their freedoms of pursuing that are protected. And therefore, being truly liberal means that you help your neighbor, you help those in need, you help other people around the world. You see that their, their, their sense of democracy is maintained so that they're not held captive uh, to body politics or dictatorships or military hunters. So today, when we talk about neoliberalism uh, in our economic policies as a problem, that's only because George Bush and company took the word liberal and left off all that it really meant and in in how it's implemented. The same is true when it comes to Christianity. When we think of the best of Christianity, as in many religions, we think in the same way of a liberal tradition. You help the sick, you help the poor, you help those in need. If a person or a group or a country or a city or a town's in crisis, you give it the best you can. But today, that is balanced in some cases against what people consider the hierarchical structure and the doctrine of their religion. So a person can say, if you're not a Christian, I'm going to have to kill you. And I think I'm going to behead you on television, a la some of the Al-Qaeda and Taliban and some of the more radical elements within uh, Islam who choose to interpret their rules from a radical point of view. Same way the Christian right in the United States with Ann Coulter. Anyone who is not a neoconservative as herself is a godless liberal. And hence the attacking both being liberal or progressive uh, with godless. So you couldn't possibly believe in God because our doctrines, and they're saying that the Bible should be interpreted exact. The word of God is absolute. It is for us to first honor the word of, and laws of God, then the laws of man in that order. And so for many of us, not just now, but Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, Voltaire, Immanuel Kant, and many others throughout history, we believe in a higher creative power but we do not believe and totally reject the, the hate and destructive forces that have manifested within the orthodox interpretation of what this God force should be. Your thought is how that plays into the current dialogue of working together or working at odds or hating each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's a large one. Um these religions, I mean, I tend to think of religions as um, social phenomena that have many layers, and um, the the body of the religion, the sort of the heavy dogmatic structure, the heavy physical, literally property, institutional structure, the the uh, the institutional church. Uh, there is inevitability; these structures emerge in history, but they have a um, a kind of a life cycle which is very different in many ways than the core essence of each of these traditions and the, the core essence of course is a 
a spiritual experience, a spiritual worldview, an, an alignment with the universe. And I'm afraid that the institutional structures of so many of our religions have so calcified through the centuries, and they have strangled uh, the light of the, the true spiritual germ that lives potentially in the side of every religion, that uh, I just see so many students who have been flushed out of their their spirituality has caused them to be flushed out of the religion of their birth. And there are exceptions, of course. There are some people who have realized beautiful alignments with the universe within their religions. But for every one of those that I've come across at a university campus, I find a hundred who have been uh, flushed out because of the intellectual stranglehold that fundamentalism, for example, has placed on the religious tradition, uh, an attempt to, array, to sort of arrest intellectual development, to fixate our, our mindset at a particular point in history and say what comes after that we don't have to pay attention to. And to that extent that these large swaths of uh, religious traditions, not just Christian, of course, but also in other Western and Eastern, and Eastern traditions, to the extent that they've given in to this um, fear of the rapid rate at which knowledge is expanding in the modern era, and have tried to sort of lock a stranglehold and say, we're going to retreat into this one body of knowledge, and we're going to treat this body of knowledge as unchanging, sacrosanct, ultimate, final. Meanwhile, we're living in a universe where all the kids are learning through all their science courses that the universe is not fixed, it's not final, it's always unfolding and becoming ever, ever, ever more complex. I think when a, when a religion uh, becomes calcified and, and is unable to grow as the species continues to grow, uh, it begins to atrophy and it becomes more counterproductive in the culture's growth and less productive. And we're at a time where the religions of the West are at a point where they are both counterproductive and productive. And which way it tilts very much depends, I think, upon the individual talent, this individual spiritual talent holding this particular pocket, this particular piece of this tradition at this point in time. Sometimes the magic's there. Sometimes the magic is not there. Sometimes it's, all, it's just a, a eulogy celebrating the past, but nothing really vital in the present, in the future. So I, I, could, when I look at the global little... landscape, I see, I see so much good that religion could do, and I see so much harm that religion is doing. When I was in the um, in the cities that were having a lot of up, upheaval and unrest in Central and South America in the 1970s. The one group of people who could always be counted upon to be supporting the progressive movements and caring for the uh, workers, the unionists, the people who are being attacked and murdered or disappeared were the Catholic priests. Mm -hmm. Without exception, I never met one who was not willing to make any sacrifice necessary, and I thought it was so noble. And in those moments when I would be talking with them about how horrible it was, because here was America supporting the military dictatorships, supporting the Sandinistas, who were nothing more than murderers, 
And yet Ronald Reagan, in his own warped perception, called them, you know, like our founding fathers. I can assure you, our founding fathers had nothing in common with people who would take weapons and give uh, give cocaine. They would get. Uh, they would give us. Um, uh, they would give us the weapons. We would give them cocaine. Uh, we would take their cocaine, and excuse me. We would give them weapons. Uh, they would give us cocaine, and I'm thinking. With that, those weapons, they brutalized the citizens, and yet the only thing that the people had to fight on their behalf was their beliefs, and their beliefs in no small measure was based upon the conviction that that the spirit was stronger than what they were opposed to. Of course, the human spirit is very strong, but it also (laughs) makes a great deal of sense to have other ways of dealing with it, like public demonstrations. They can kill one person. It's, It's not so easy they kill 100,000 people. If you have 100,000 people or a, a half a million or a million people march, uh, how are you going to arrest them all? You can't. By the way, I, I see this also today in China, where um, the Chinese government, who is without faith, um, they are the worst case of an atheist. Not that atheism in and of itself is a negative, but how they display it, because they they care about nothing except maintaining power. So they, if they have to you know, uh, destroy people. They will take away their rights. They will. And we allow that to happen. By the way, that's another concept about our a sense of foreign policy where true liberalism is applied. In true liberalism, and this is a message for President Obama, true liberals in the past would have addressed the inequities that kept people in other countries from having a quality of life and the freedom and democratic principles to engage in their life. So we wouldn't have been kowtowing to the uh, Saudi Arabians, who have massive human rights abuses, to the people in the Sudan with their Darfur genocide, to uh, different uh, uh, dictatorships or different um, regimes such as apartheid that we supported because we were major trading partners with them and and to China the worst offender of all and look what they've done in Tibet until you're willing to go to Tibet until you're willing to see that they destroyed 50,000 monasteries they killed over 200,000 people and displaced others you can't appreciate how bad it was but true liberalism would say we will convene a world court on human rights, you will be held accountable, and whatever verdict based upon the 1948 laws the conventions on human rights, you will be held accountable for. And sooner or later, you will pay for this. And we're not just going to go and borrow money from you and look the other way, and we're not going to allow this to happen. So shouldn't religion also in its best form acknowledge when human rights are in violation and not just look at it, well, what we say in our church, our synagogue, our cathedral, or, or our chapel, or a mosque, that's one thing. How we live our lives are something else. And if we have to do business with a butcher, a murderer, a genocidalist, well, we'll do that. But that won't mean that we have to take that energy and that business dealing back into that environment where we worship. This is also something I believe that must be addressed. Your thoughts, please. Well, of course, it's always hard to completely embody uh, in our our social actions all of our beliefs that we affirm intellectually and spiritually. But when we fail to do that, and whether it's an individual or an institution, and if religion fails to embody its deepest values and fails to 
model justice and to insist on justice and a model for, uh, insist on uh, transformation of our societies to preserve uh, the well-being of all its citizens, then it fails to um, it fails history. It fails to bring forward the full gospel, uh, uh, the full prophetic message, uh, uh, the full message of compassion. Uh, so, you know, it's hard to do, but it must be done. That's our task. That's, that's the job of these institutions, and that's the job of, of we who believe in these things. Of course, what you have frequently is you have people who, like yourself or others, like the priests I was mentioning, and, and the nuns, let us not forget them, mm -hmm. uh, and the missionaries, in many cases, who they were there to help, and they knew the dangers, because many of them were also killed. In fact, one of the most famous uh, was killed in South America. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the people at the hierarchical level, the highest members of the church, understand it or appreciate it. Or I believe, for example, at the height of the Rwandan um, massacres, the genocide, I believe that it was the responsibility of the Pope to have gone to Africa and convened all the bishops and did everything he personally could have done. He is now the current Pope. But, uh, but the, what, the head of the, car, the, excuse me, Cardinal at that time, who was the most powerful person beyond the Pope, should have been there convening the other bishops and cardinals to have demanded, um, since most of the perpetrators, the murderers, were Catholic, that this was a, a sin, uh, a mortal sin that could not be forgiven. They must stop. I didn't see that kind of sacrifice done. In fact, I'm doing a documentary right now on Rwanda, not from the genocide. There's no genocide in the film. There's no killing in the film. That would be gratuitous. We're aware of it. Instead, how all the policymakers around the world including those, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright, uh, uh, Kofi Annan and all the others, uh, Boutrous Biscali, all the others who were powerful at all levels, the French, Mitrion, all the people who could have done something didn't. And they chose not to. And why? And I'm trying to put together the piece of the puzzle to show how everyone has just wiped their hands clean of this massive genocide and how it could happen again. And yet the people who were really making the sacrifices were the people on the ground. You know, the, the, the people, the, the, the priest who refused to leave his church, knowing that he'd be slaughtered along with his parishioners. And he was. But that was a choice he made. I don't see anyone in the Vatican ready to do that. I don't see any of the leaders of American religions do it. It's just, to me, it, it's a dark side of the religious equation, separating out the politics of those who control a religion versus the the basic beliefs and values of the religion. Your thoughts, please. Well, I don't know why it often seems to be the case that uh, the saints are lower in the hierarchical system, so the saints are closer in the grounds and the sinners are higher up in the ranks. But certainly that seems to be the way history is often read, and, and that's often what history shows us. is something that it, it seems to be hard to combine true saintliness, and by that I mean kind of uh, uh, either a God intoxication or an, an awareness of the abiding uh, sacredness of the world, the universe, and the life in it, and, uh, and ecclesiastical office are offices of great leadership. 
Um, we find our saints often scattered around the edges and the perimeters and the edges of the pews instead of in positions of great responsibility. Why is that? I'm not really sure. Um, I don't know. I, it's, a, it's a profound question if it could be answered. It, it deserves a great deal of introspection. Please hold your thoughts. We're going to be right back. Let us take a look for a moment at one of the most perplexing aspects in all religions. But I'm only going to deal right now for this moment with uh, Christianity and with Christianity, uh, Catholicism. I'm going to make some quotes, and if you would please, after I make these quotes from the Bible directly, could you give us your understanding of the dynamic of people who believe literally that every word in the Bible should be obeyed because it's coming as the Word of God versus how the Bible really should be understood and for the best that it can be, the most inspiring, the most motivational, to understand how we can use the words that have been written uh, to help as a guideline in our life versus the literalist, and there are many literalists, not only in Christianity but in all other religions, who if, if it's written, it justifies what they're going to feel about themselves or others with enormous complications. I mean, just imagine, you know, the, the abortion issue. Look at the death penalty. Uh, look at the way that we treat others who are not like us. Uh, look at uh, the, the look at slavery. Look at all the possibilities that can come once you have one group that says this is the way it should be because this is God's law versus the way that we can understand it. Okay. Yes, Christopher. All right. So please be patient. This will take just a few moments. All right. But I think it's important, because when I hear Ann Coulter on Sean Hannity or Riley talking about, you know, godless liberals, I'm wondering when she's talking about godless liberals, gee whiz, from my interpretation and the writings that I've read, Jesus would have been liberal, you know, and, and, Ga- and Gandhi was a liberal, and Martin Luther King were liberal, <laughs> yep. and, and even the Jewish philosopher, physician, Maimonides was certainly a liberal. He was yep. the one who understood how to combine Judaism, um, uh, Christianity, and, and uh, Islam to show that they had some unifying and cooperative factors. These are liberal principles, and certainly Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, uh, Thomas More were all liberals based upon their principles and the ethic of what they saw of Thoreau. I could list a thousand people who were responsible in their lives, were thoughtful, giving, loving, caring, nonviolent, and they were they were of a liberal persuasion. So that means that they were without God. So here we go. And this is I'm quoting verbatim just to make the point, and then we will look at this. What the Bible says about menstruation, Leviticus 15, 19 through 30. And these are relatively short. Quote, And if a woman have an issue, and her uh, issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the, uh, till the even. And the and everything that she lieth upon in her separation shall be unclean. Everything also that she sitteth upon shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall also wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. 
And whosoever touches anything that she sat upon shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. And if he be on her bed or on anything whereupon she sitteth, uh, when he touches it, he shall be unclean. And now it goes on. And here it's talking about, in effect, a woman being unclean at all levels before uh, she's allowed to be touched. Quote, and on the eighth day she shall take upon her uh, two turtles uh, or two young pigeons and bring them unto the priest. And the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make an uh, atonement for her before the Lord for the issue of her uncleanliness. Now, before we go to this, this is a big issue in some religions, especially the Orthodox religions. My question, just a simple observation. If God is so perfect in what he's created, why did he create something in imperfection that he would then have to admonish and set rules? If he was perfect, why didn't he just create a woman with no period who could yeah. conceive without, if he allowed Mary Magdalene to, uh, Mary to, to create uh, without uh, conception, why couldn't he allow women to conceive without the blood necessary for this or why make a being having a period unclean is because throughout history including ancient times and certainly through the pagan times uh, a woman having her period was celebrated it was a time for renewal and rejoicing and not something to be considered a curse that's one issue I'd like for you to deal with yeah, I think, you know, this kind of old and widespread, because it cuts across several religious and cultural traditions, this fear that men have about the menstrual blood of women, and uh, is really increasingly we look at it, and it, it just looks like um, silly children um, being afraid of a natural biological process, you know, the, to be afraid of feminine fertility, to be afraid of the power of, of that women hold this precious gift of incubating uh, the life of the next generation. And these father religions, all of them in the last 3,000 years, these father religions, and if they have a father at the peak of the pyramid, at the top, well, that kind of, uh, then the father has to be responsible for the generation of life. But here we have every month a reminder that it's the woman who incubates the next generation of life for this species. And so I think the father religions kind of have all these rules that they build around menstruating women to try to convince them that they are somehow inferior, impure, backwards, or every, the source of everything that's wrong with life. But increasingly, um, that just looks ridiculous, doesn't it? Uh, when we look more at a wider variety of religions and we see uh, older religions in the, in the matriarchal religions that predated this current generation of patriarchal religions, we see uh, religions which often honor the fertility of women and honor uh, menstrual blood as their commitment and their, their contribution to the ongoing fertility of life on earth for our species. But the point you raise places this, the, the question is much larger, of course, than this particular cluster of rules, because you could quote many passages from Leviticus and from the older Old Testament scriptures, particularly which have these strange and bizarre sounding rules and regulations. And every religion 
that's been around for several thousand years has got some rules in its history or some kind of ideas in its history which kind of patently look old-fashioned as our knowledge continues to grow and change naturally we have to let go of some old ways of thinking to move into expanding knowledge and but if your religious tradition is committed to a static revelation in a sense a static cosmology and a static revelation which looks for all truth ultimate truth to be ever fixed in anything which is finite and closed so that your religion becomes the final revelation or this is the words of the final prophet when you do that inevitably the longer life continues to grow and the longer people continue to learn inevitably it creates a tension between these perfectly honorable beliefs in their particular time and place and the way they become increasingly outmoded by the ongoing uh, learning and the ongoing process, which then raises the question, what is God? Is God a reality which can be fixated and fixed at a particular point in history with a particular set of cultural values, or is God the very life process itself which is continuing to explore, continuing to expand, and will continue to do so for billions and billions of years yet. And if we take the second view, which I think is the, the much more attractive view, if we take the second view, then it requires, it, it inevitably, it, it leads us to treat uh, our own uh, spiritual lineage, our own hist- religious traditions with um, discretion so that we don't get caught in some of the old-fashioned ways of our past, which were fine at their time, perhaps, but they're not fine now. And uh, I think think a lot of people are basically coming to that kind of decision in their life, whether they're coming out of a Christian background, which has its old-fashioned ways, or an Islamic background, or a Buddhist background, or a Hindu background, which has lots of old-fashioned ways around women and menstruation uh, into something which is fresher, something which is more in tune with values which are not just culturally transitory, but enduringly important values, like the equality between men and women and everything that belongs to the world of women and everything that belongs to the world of men. Very, very insightful. I thank you very much for that answer. There's an old Italian proverb says, "Below the navel, there is neither religion nor truth." <laughs> and it, and it was Adlai Stevenson who said, "It's often easier to fight for principles than to live up to them." Mm. How many times have we heard people uh, giving us their principles, but then you see they're not living at their standards. Good. I appreciate that. Let us go to another one. And, and again, I, I will show you where this is going in a few moments. Again, the danger to me would be if I took something literally without first using reason and intuition to try to understand its meaning. Because with reason and intuition and common sense, I can define that which was done by a human being in the name of God versus something that they're trying to tell me justifies all their actions, including political actions. Think of, I just saw a movie the other day. And I recommend it. It's a, it was based on the, the life of Harvey Milk. 
And mm-hmm. for those of you who are not familiar, there in, in the mid-1970s, there was a middle-aged man who moved to California named Harvey Milk. Uh, he had not succeeded anything up to that point. He was frustrated. He opened up a little business. It was a, a photo-developing store in uh, on Castro Street. And at that point, Castro Street was not the gay street. There was only a couple stores, but he organized other people in the neighborhood uh, to, and, and began to say, let's open up some gay businesses here. And they did. And over a period of years, it began to flourish. And so suddenly the gays who were being raided all the time, uh, they, if just being in a gay nightclub was enough to get you arrested. You didn't have to do anything. Just the fact that you were in a club that was considered a gay club, you could be brought in on morals statute and the Mann Act. So, and, and this constant harassment was everywhere. It was also in New York until one night. Thank goodness the gays on Christopher Street at a little place, in fact, I was just filming in front of it recently, uh, called Stonewall, a little tiny hole-in-the-wall place. They, this was one night when the gays decided the New York City police just couldn't come in there and beat them and harass them and, and arrest them for nothing. They fought back, and within hours, the first major seminal clash between the gays and the forces of the establishment and the church were at odds, And but from that, gay liberation sprang. That was the lexicon of the gay movement. Now, anyhow, so out we go to California. Very shortly thereafter, I might mention, we're talking about 1967, 68, 69, and now Castro Street is just beginning. It was kind of like a ghetto street, but it's beginning to be populated by the gays. And then along comes uh, Harvey Milk, and he, and he opens up his effort. But then he starts saying that there was a great deal of bias against gays by other businesses and by the city. And so he runs for uh, city supervisor, and three times he wasn't elected. And then uh, they redistrict how they were going to, uh, and Castro Street was in his district, and, and Haight was in his district. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Haight-Asbury, but it, it was um, a psychedelic uh, uh, street at one time, and uh, it was Hippieville out there. So you had the hippies and the gays working together, and that's how Wilk, um, Harvey Milk got elected. Anyhow, the, the the man named White was also elected from the Irish Catholic area, and he was vehemently anti-gay. And he would later uh, shoot in the mayor and, uh, and then walk right over to Harvey Milk and shot him several times, including a final shot in the back of the head. And he went to prison for five years. That's it. Five years. Killed two guys one day. Uh, he was homophobic. But a lot of other people were at the same time, not the least of which is Anita Bryant. But it was Harvey Milk who led the campaign in San Francisco and throughout the state and debated the major state legislator who got that whole initiative. I think it was Proposition 8 overturned. And uh, otherwise, if that had passed, all gays in all positions of, of jobs could have been fired if it were state jobs. School teachers, um, anyone in public office, if they knew or suspected even that you were gay, you were out of a job. So he really did a lot of good. In fact, on the night that he was killed, there was a memorial service. The largest ever happened in San Francisco it was 30,000 gays did a silent um, candle march on his behalf. He did a lot of good. In any case, yeah. think of how many people, especially the religious people, thought he's gay he should have been killed. 
now. That is something that we have to deal with. And I'm going to deal with a few other things before then. Because if you're going to tell me that the Bible is the Word of God, then I've got to ask you, and I'm saying this rhetorically, not to you, uh, Christopher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got to ask you, then please justify by your actions the following. Cannibalism. Leviticus 26.16, I will also do this unto you. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Leviticus 26.29, and you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters shall ye eat. And Deuteronomy 28.53, and thou shalt eat the fruit of thy own body, the flesh of the sons and thy daughters. And Deuteronomy 28:57, and toward your young one that cometh out from between her feet and towards her children, she shall bear, for she shall eat them. Now, this is through the wrath, quote, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts and the land darkened, and the people should be the first fuel on the fire. Uh, no man shall spare his brother, and he shall snatch on the right hand. And, and be hungry, and he shall eat on the left hand, and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm, Isaiah 9, 19 to 20. And I have dozens of study, uh, statements from the Bible directly just on cannibalism. Then I have, before we go off on that, then uh, I also have how to deal with people who are not like you, like amputation. Quote, uh, Deuteronomy 25, uh, 11 to when a man strive toward uh, together one with another, and the wife of one uh, draweth near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him, and putteth forth her hand, and taketh him by the secrets, then thou shalt cut off her hand, thine eye shall not pity her. Then another one, in judge, uh, Judges 1 to 4 to 6, the Lord delivered the Canaanites uh, into their land, but uh, uh, as they fled, they pursued after him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. Amputation. There are several things on amputation. What the Bible says about abortion. Interesting enough, abortion is not murder. The fetus is not considered a human life. And in Exodus, if, if men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet not, no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according to a woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt uh, give life for life. And the Bible places no value on the fetus or infants less than one month old. And it says that in Leviticus. And... Uh, and God even approves of killing fetuses. Numbers 31, 15 to 17. And Moses said unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive? Now therefore kill every man among the little ones, and kill every woman that hath known man by lying with him. And then it goes on beyond cannibalism to, uh, to non-Christians. Um, quote, Whoever... I beeth not in the doctrine of Christ, have not God. That's John 9. But how to deal with them, uh, quote, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess that not Jesus Christ come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And they shall be shunned and they shall be killed. Uh, Deuteronomy 13 to 6 to 18. If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or thy wife, of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is at thine own soul, um, entice thee uh, secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, that person is to be killed. And then I have hundreds 
of statements about killing your own child if your child talks back to you, and it's in the Bible repeatedly, uh, killing others, killing every man, woman, and child, and especially on, uh, on killing your own children if they, uh, if they say something you don't like or if you curse or if you masturbate. That's another thing you can be killed for. And uh, so I have a uh, uh, quote. A child who hits or curses his parents must be executed. Now, that's an absolute. So think of all the Christian moral uh, religious right who've had a child either curse them or hit them. Then if you're really not going to be a hypocrite, then wouldn't you have to take your child out and allow all the neighbors, as it says here, to stone them to death? Uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If an ox gores someone, then the ox shall surely be stoned. And it goes on. So just imagine if someone says, okay, I'm in the pulpit and I'm telling you that homosexuals are bad and should be killed. And then someone says from the congregation, but I saw your daughter scream at you and use the Lord's name in vain. That's an equal indiscretion, and shouldn't the whole congregation get together and kill her after services? Do you yeah. see where I'm going with this? If you're, yeah. going, if you're going to say one word is the word of God and every word is the word of God, then to me, you've got an awful lot of very uh, wraithful, uh, almost demonic behavior you're going to have to engage in that shows uh, extremely... Uh, distempered emotions and is counterproductive to life, counterintuitive to sensibility, and counter love. Uh, it is the dark side of nature. Your thoughts, please. Well, the Bible was put together, assembled, collected over uh, over a thousand years. Eleven hundred years. Yeah, it's a very long time. It's it's put together piecemeal. It comes out of many old folk traditions. Uh, it's uh, compiled, edited, redacted. It catches uh, pieces of humanity in a particular time and place at a particular set of uh, cultural norms. Uh, Christian, you know, the Bible, New and Old Testament, covers, uh, has so many thousands and tens of thousands of, of individual ideas and values and admonitions, and, and anybody who says, I believe the whole Bible, and it's all literally true, when you really press them and sit them down, just as you're pointing out, they very seldom even know the whole Bible, and they very seldom ever live by all of the principles that are there. They always pick and choose, and this is inevitable pick and choose a set of values that are represented in the text and systematically uh, ignoring another set of values which are also in the text or a set of circumstances. Are they? And sometimes they do this with varying degrees of awareness, a checks and balances where they think there are supervening causes and there's reasons why we don't pay attention to this and other reasons why we pay more attention to this. But inevitably there is a, a selective picking and choosing uh, and that's necessary in order to uh, walk away from these old, uh, old-fashioned ideas. The problem is, of course, if you hold on to your favorite old-fashioned idea, but then you reject uh, this other old-fashioned idea like cannibalism or, or, or uh, killing your child who talks back to you, 
um, then you, you have this inconsistency where you, it's no longer adequate to say, I'm doing it because it's in the Bible, because that's not why you're really doing it. You're doing it because of reasons that cause you to select this particular principle out of this entire uh, laundry basket of all these other principles. It's not just because it's in the Bible. And that means we have to really begin to look at what is it that's really informing the choices that we're making, the moral choices, the ethical choices that we're really making. What are the values that's really guiding us? And then when you look at that, you look at the larger historical context for uh, the people who are actually saying these things. And you have this this terrible contradiction of this tension of people who are on the one hand affirming some very old ideas from that come back a thousand or two thousand years or older, uh, three thousand years, and at the same time trying to live with all the advantages of scientific technology, of all the advantages of the revolution in thought that has taken place in the last three hundred years, wanting the best of science, wanting the best of medicine, the best of technology, but not really um, being able to integrate that with this kind of blind and rigid fixation on these selectively edited social values which come out of a very early time and in many ways a very kind of primitive set of ideas. And intellectually, it's so transparently, the, the tradition is so transparently at odds that it leads to a kind of intellectual cancer, an intellectual inadequacy. And, um, and at least looking at university students, uh, and these are thinking young men and women, they can't stand that inadequacy. They really can't stand to have a tradition which is so intellectually incompetent, philosophically incompetent, trying to give them guidance to live with the complexities of the 21st century. It, it just it just can't be done. And that's, it's a real shame, too, because there's a lot of beauty. There's a potential, a lot of beauty inside those religious traditions. But when it's combined with this kind of uh, intellectually narrow and culturally regressive uh, trends in our, in our time, it just it does such great injustice to, to the, um, the more beautiful themes of compassion, of uh, acceptance, of forgiveness, of courage, of heroism. I appreciate that answer. It's one of the most enlightened answers on understanding this. Because a friend of mine is Dr. Ibrahim Malik. He is an imam in New York. He is a religious leader of probably 30 to 40,000 uh, practitioners of Islam. And yet when I've sat with him and I've said, and I've quoted him passages from the, uh, from the Quran, and I said, these are nihilistic. This is a God of hate. This is, this is not anyone I, anybody should believe in. And, and uh, this, this wasn't written by God. This is written by a human being. And I said, can't you, you surely understand at different times people contributed to every single religious book. And there's no historical accurate way of knowing who wrote what. Look at the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all anonymous. Nobody knows mm -hmm. who they were. And look at how many, the Council of Nicaea. Look at how many other councils were convened over different periods of time to select which ones would become the Bible or a religious book and which ones would not. And there was at least 100 to 1 scrolls that were considered uh, and rejected and many times 
Byrne, the great uh, Alex- uh, Library of Alexandra, had uh, estimated over two million manuscripts in it mm-hmm. and destroyed. I said, so why can't we just look at all of these religious books for what they are? And why can't someone like yourself, and I was telling him, redo it and do a new book of Islam? Uh, and they said, oh, we can't do that. But he said, you are right. Those who choose to support their political and ideological points of view by taking the most radical points from the Quran are justified in doing so. But just as, just as justified are those who are condemning that action. And, and I said, but that is a, the paradox. In most of these religious texts, and I've even found it in Buddhism, by the way, in Jainism, mm-hmm. you will have either rituals or dogma or creeds or edicts that contradict other parts of their own statements. Yes. And clearly someone could say, would you as you say this on page this and this on page that, and they're absolutely opposite, which one is true? And the dynamic is you had different people who had different control at different times who decided because of their position of power that this is what they wanted in. And also, could we not for a moment ask ourselves, what would a religious book of today be like if over the next hundred years, the people in positions of power and giving their own personal perspective were writing the different uh, chapters. What would that look like based upon who's been in power if we took the last hundred years? Could you imagine how varying those chapters would be? It'd be the corporate gospel. That's correct. And why not understand that throughout history there were men who hated women, Uh, did not want growth, and were angry and spiteful and vengeful, and their words are the words that we're attributing to God. And at other times, there were pacifist, wonderful, creative, beautiful, harmonizing individuals who wanted nothing to do with violence as a deterrent or a a, 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 to codify a a rule, but rather looked at reason and, and patience. And we see those words. Why do we have such a hard time? Why do people wrap themselves either completely in the literature or reject it completely instead of looking at it for how it might help them and motivate them in all religions, not just in Christianity and the Old and New Testament? Boy, that's a, that's a hard and a long question. You have uh, plenty of time. Take your time. You will not be interrupted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it really, to me, it throws us back in the direction of of asking what is really at the core of these religious traditions. Because we've, if you study history, you've seen so many ways in which religions have lost their way and gotten themselves off course and involved themselves in politics and involved themselves in um, ritual minutiae and, and, and all sorts of legal uh, uh, debates that can go on endlessly and endlessly. Um, and you wonder sometimes, well, what's really at the core of it? What really lies at the very center of it? And I think looking back at what lies at the center of each of them, particularly the ones coming into maturity in the last 2,000 years, there is a particular um, spiritual genius, a particular way of experiencing the world, which which uh, opens up the portal for 
uh, a new kind of influx of an awareness, a new influx of energy, an influx of power, an overflowing of an understanding, uh, and something which is so different and yet so contagious. It, it, it seems to spread like a contagion among the early followers. It's a, it's a new vision, and it has an uplifting quality. When people are touched by it, they know that their life is richer this afternoon than it was this morning. There is a, a sense of it, it helps things make sense. It lifts us to a high ideal. It, it opens our heart. It helps us come to terms with a, with a harmful past. Why is it that so often, unfortunately, so often this is not people's experience of religion today? It doesn't have that kind of effect. It's intellectually cramped. Uh, it is often culturally divisive or culturally regressive. Uh, it is. It, it often doesn't aspire the very uh, noblest in the human spirit. It often inspires a uh, a cultural paranoia, a religious uh, a religious hostility towards them people, those people who think like this or wear these turbans like that. Um, and I think there is it's there is a renewal of the love affair with god that's taking place but i think so much of it is not taking place in religions right now but the new renewal of the love affair with god the encounter with the ideas which are truly uplifting to the mind and uplifting to the human heart this is taking place, continuing to taking place in the landscape of history, but it's often taking place in a secular environment. The understanding of the body, the nurturance of the regenerative process of the body are often not, as you know, those aren't taking place in hospitals, but they're taking place uh, around the edges of the nonprofit uh, world. Uh, this regenerative process of a, of a political regeneration of a social, uh, a deepening of a sense of social contract, a deepening of a sense of the importance of reestablishing social fairness, fundamental equity uh, in our time. The, the vision of a, the, an emerging holism, an emerging global um, holism that allows us to embrace different uh, traditions, different cultures uh, on equal footing as uh, brothers and sisters in a larger community. That's taking place, I think, in, in many uh, earth-friendly environments, in many uh, ecologically attuned environments, in many post-modern political orientations, post-corporate orientations. And I don't think, I think the churches are often participating here and there around the edges of that, but they are not themselves, the, too often, they are not the, themselves the center of this generative change. But the generative change is taking place, but in different centers, in different, in different places. I, I, that's why I really do not see these historical institutions as being powerful sources of generative change. They may be helping us with stewardship, but they're not powerful sources of generative change. I think the generative change is coming out of uh, a different, uh, different slices of the social fabric as we move forward uh, into um, well, this challenging historical uh, period. Christopher, I see that as a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. 
I mean, when you when you when you look today, you go out to Denver, and I was just in Denver. You have an enormous amount of the born again evangelical Christian movements. These are super churches where they might have twenty thousand people on a weekend attending them. They they you walk in, and they're humongous. They look like a they look like a Madison Square Garden, but all done out with um, the color schemes. They're full functional television productions. And these are all based upon the cult of personality, mm-hmm. the person that, uh, whether it's Haggard or whoever it might have been who runs one of these, people come because of this person. And then you start listening to what the people say, and it's almost always in two veins. You're born a sin, A, I think that's nonsense, and B, that the only way you can repent from this born a sin and being human is you've got to, you know... Uh, tie to the church and support the church, and then everything is the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. You know, we're born again of Jesus, and they're they're all confused about whether it's the Father, Son, or Holy Ghost. They are really confused, and yet they just they are absolute uh, dependent upon this. Now that will affect how they vote, where they live. Uh, that will affect their relationship with the issue of immigrants and and to be open or not. Um, it'll affect their how they. Uh, proposed to deal with the poor in America, which are 100 million, and it'll also look at their foreign policies. I mean, just the faith-based initiatives alone that George Bush uh, spent billions of dollars, Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't have that. I don't want, you know, I don't want someone's specific religious beliefs being the basis of our foreign policy, because if you're also the head of a corporation— and you run a corporation that deals in oil, then you're going to be able to have a different view of dealing with the Saudi Arabians or going after the oil in Iraq, and therefore the policies come from it. And then if you get your congregation behind that, and there are about 60 million born-agains, then think of the political power you have through your religion and your interpretation of those religious beliefs to direct foreign policy, domestic policy, uh, the uh, imprisoning people. Uh, one kid uh, whose mother called me said he got 25 years in New York State, and by the way, which is an utterly corrupt state, and I'm, I'm also living in New York, and I will condemn it for it's not changing, and I'm also sorry that my uh, old buddy, uh, uh, long before he became governor, uh, David Patterson, hasn't made, a, made an abolishing of all the Rockefeller old drug laws. One kid took... Uh, a, a sugar cube of LSD at a rock concert. And he went to prison for 25 years hmm. because, quote, sorry, the judges have no control over it. it, must be mandatory. Who do you think was behind all these insane, inhuman, despicable laws that took kids off the streets and put them in prison where they're going to be raped and, and brutalized and come out frequently um, destroyed or damaged merchandise and angry at the world, the people who, either the Democrats who couldn't find their consciousness or the Republicans who had a consciousness but said, you know, um, if you do this, you're a bad person, you, you're a person suffering from moral interpretude, and you deserve your punishment. And just the hypocrisy of these people to allow others to suffer because they're in, in their... They're not understanding uh, any of this. And then I wonder, what would happen if you took all these religious bigots and you put them all in one room, and it was the trial room, and you had 
you had a young boy who had taken LSD, and by the way, they weighed the sugar cube. And based upon the weight of the sugar cube, that's how the uh, judging was done. And then here are all these, you know, Newt Gendrich, he's never seen a jail sentence. He couldn't uh, want it to be longer. And all these other people, do, and then they're all Christians and born again and Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly, all these people there. You know, and you can just see they're, they're getting off on this. And then you have suddenly a surprise uh, jurist, and it's Jesus Christ. Hmm. What would Jesus Christ do if he were a jurist and he was going to have to sentence a kid to 15 years in a state prison for taking LSD in a sugar cube. Do you think the historical, allegorical, or real Christ would say, yeah, you deserve to be raped and beaten and made someone sex slave. You deserve it. Or would he choose differently? That is the problem that I see when we have these personalities become cult leaders, creating mega churches, irrespective of their religion. Those become dominant political uh, uh, voices, and they hold enormous sway over politicians. And what is done, just like the ones from uh, Tennessee and Kentucky and Alabama that have all these foreign car makers and have given them all kinds of subsidies, they're opposed to bailing out General Motors, not because of a principle, but because uh, they've already they've already set their allegiance with the people who are doing business in their state. And so it's all hypocrisy. Your thoughts, please. And uh, I think the root of that hypocrisy, if you take it right down, and I, I don't think these people are, they don't start off being morally backwards or, or dense in this way, but I, I think if we were to look for what's the root of the hypocrisy, I think it lies in the attempt to fundamentally reject the modern world. and Because if you accept the modern world, there are certain things that come with it. If you accept the modern world, if you accept the technology, what's come with this technology is the mass migration of peoples, and then with telecommunications, the mass education about each other's about each other and peoples, the, the intellectual migrations which have been taking place. And the fundamental, the most religiously fundamental difference between the 17th century and the 21st century uh, is the mixture of ideologies is the coming together and the the forced confrontation with uh, the spiritual traditions coming from other cultures of different skins and different diets and and, and different uh, histories and uh, a different set of vocabulary and so that if you accept the modern culture you must accept the fundamental pluralism of the world which of course puts you at intention with the you know the the tradition, which is my religion, is the true religion. Uh, and the, but in the end, it's not hard to make the transition. It only involves letting go of one thing, letting go of just one simple thing, and that is the idea that our religion is the exclusive purchase, has the exclusive purchase on religion. If we can let go of that, then that opens up the possibility of, to a genuine collaboration with persons of goodwill from around the planet in a way which is truly theologically respectful. And I think the fundamental hypocrisy that lies behind this rigidity 
in uh, so many conservative issues, a rigidity to broaden the understanding of love beyond the traditional norms of marriage, male-female, the, the, the narrowness of that certain spiritual methods for becoming intimate with the force of life are okay, but other spiritual methods are, are not okay. Um, this, this kind of rigidity comes from a kind of paralysis, uh, and that paralysis, I think, again, is just, it's a rejection of the changing circumstances in which we've lived. It's an attempt to sort of hold on to a past in order to avoid coming to terms with the present, which we don't really know how to. We don't know how to integrate the respect for the historical roots of one religious tradition with the respect for the historical roots of other religious traditions. We don't know how to respect someone who is a good person, who is a clearly loving and compassionate and creative person, somebody clearly attuned with the deeper forces of life, and yet believes many things about God fundamentally different than we do. How do we put those together? How do we hold, uh, how do we hold the circle until eventually we can come to terms with our differences, come to terms with our otherness, and find the, not only the common ground, but the larger pattern that connects us into the, uh, a post-religious uh, vision, a post-religious post-culturally fragmented vision, where we're going, a new vision of what the future human, what the future family will be like, will look like. And, and this fundamentalist reflex, whether it's in the Christian context or any religious context, including the cultural context, this reflex to sort of grasp, to tighten the fist, hold on to the past, I think is a fundamental failure to come to terms with the conditions of modern life. I really appreciate that answer. Thank you very much. That's uh, very insightful. We're going to take some calls now. Uh, we only have uh, seven minutes left. Our number is 888-873-4643. 888-873-4643. And uh, we have... Uh, uh, and by the way, just to give an extension of what you're saying, I believe that many of the self-empowerment individuals um, have taken the step of interpreting the best of the various religions into a self-empowerment movement and left out all those that are archaic, that are counterintuitive and counterproductive. Yes. And I believe that people, everybody, wants to be motivated by something that's spiritual, that's loving, that's giving, that's sharing, that's caring, that's, that, that respects life, not just your own, but other people as well. And I think this enormous desire has led us towards, you know, Deepak and others in their own way. And I believe each one, even Michael Murphy or George Leonard or Marilyn Ferguson or Fritjof Capra and all the others, they're merely borrowing what religion had at its best and left the rest away. I think they're borrowing it, they're extracting the seed, and they're also, of course, extending and expanding it in terms of the light of their particular discipline. So they're bringing it forward with a twist. They're bringing it forward in a way which is integrated with something new which has come about uh, distinctly now in the, in the modern era. Well, that's, that's a good thing. Anything, anything that can help us work together to love one another, to respect one another, has got my vote. Let's say hello to 
a listener from Rhode Island. Sorry, I don't know your name. Could you give us your name, please? Yes, my name is Ma Amritananda. I'm a meditation teacher, and I'm very interested in what's being said today so much. I've never called in about this sort of thing before, but I had to call in today because um, I feel that you're right on so much so that if you could write a book about this particular conversation you're having today, it would be so enlightening to so many people. Uh, That said, um, your focus on change. You see, I believe that religions really involve the need and and, and the recognition of the need for change by their founders, Mm -hmm. and that this is where they have fallen short. And that, um, for instance, in, in Christianity, Christ said, all that I do, so shall you also do, and more, which implies that we could be like him and do more. People mm-hmm. like Gary Null, who can do laying on of hands, are a good example of this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They do more because of the context in which they are working the world has changed and then the 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 phrase seek the truth and you shall find it well does is truth static you're talking about the difference between stasis and change truth is not static we are always having to learn new truth and incorporate it consistently and adjust according to the new truth we find to what is our reality and how to deal with it um, I think in terms of the current conversation of grail that's going on today and the Mary Magdalene uh, as vessel of the Christ is a metaphor for us, not just women, but men as well as the vessel, our heart being the holy grail of our bodies and, and the, the, the potential for the healing within that can take place when our chemical makeup reacts to our emotional condition, which hopefully we're constantly trying to improve, such as uh, guests, uh, I think Gary had Masura Emoto on, I'm not sure, but he certainly did talk about messages in water. And people like Stan Tenen, who have pointed to the, the grail of language, the Hebrew language is the shape of a cup, cupped hand, every letter is based on a grail concept. And Dan Winter, for instance, in his physics, which shows a cup-shaped funnel-like, vessel-like context in which physics develops, and his the business he goes through about the entrance of bliss into our DNA and how that can actually be measured. And it's a cup shape. It's a vessel. And so... Are we looking at things from the metaphoric perspective enough and and how these metaphors relate to us individually? Because there is, in fact, a Christ, and the the Christian teachings say, Christ is in you. The okay, kingdom of God we're, we're, is within you. We're running out you. of I, I really anyway, appreciate your call. I think Thank you. I think um, we only have a minute to go in the program. Let us let uh, our guest answer that. Thank you very much for your call. Well, I don't have an answer so much. I just think you should call in more often yeah. <laughs> because you have good things to say. Well, because she understands that the best that we can do is learn by metaphor instead of having everything be accepted or rejected because of its literal interpretation. 
Yes. And and that's what many of the greatest religious books in the world were meant to be in their time, is a metaphor. And it, those who understand the best that it can be are some of the best people in their times because they lived a life of respect and love. And that's also the biochemistry. And yes, we did have the professor on about the water. And we have a whole series coming up on how our DNA is affected by our emotions. Um, and Bruce Lipton, we just filmed him, in fact. He's in a new film about the epigeneticism of all this. I want to thank you very much for the time you've spent with us. It has been enlightening. And as always, I really appreciate your input. Uh, thank you very much, Gary. My guest and just ending today's show, the author of The Living Classroom, Teaching and the Collective Consciousness, is Professor Christopher Bache, B-A-Y-C-H-E. He is the uh, Professor of Religious Studies and Transpersonal Psychology at Youngstown State University. I'm Gary Nall. Thank you all very much for being here today. Have a nice day. <laughs>